Hello and welcome to Science, A Candle in the Dark, a monthly conversation about the wonder of science and how it illuminates our lives in this incredible universe. In association with the Central Valley Cafe Scientifique, we intend to make science a part of our public discourse, especially here in California's Central Valley. I'm your host, Dr. Madhusudan Katti from the Biology Department at Fresno State. Our producer Vic Bedoyan is at the controls today as we broadcast live for the first time. This is exciting. You also just heard some new theme music composed for the show by Scott Hatfield, science teacher at Bullard High School and one of our f- the founders of Central Valley Cafe Scientific back in 2007. Let's start with a brief sampling of science news. The pace of scientific discovery is so high these days that it is impossible even for professional scientists to keep up with everything that is published every week, even in our own disciplines. What I'll try to do here is give you a brief idiosyncratic sample of some recent stories that may make you scratch your head, make your jaw drop, or give you hope or despair. And like any good science professor, I had my graduate student Chris Hensley, moonlighting as a science correspondent for this show, help me find some stories to share. First, we have news of a a new treatment for HIV. Uh, Researchers at Scripps Research Institute in Jupiter, Florida, have created a new molecule Uh, that binds to specific areas on the HIV virus, disabling it and preventing it from entering human cells, thereby preventing infection. Tests on a small number of monkeys uh, prevented HIV infection in all of the monkeys that were treated with the new molecule. So this is some hope. Although the treatment is still years away from testing in humans, uh, it shows promise. Meanwhile, a team of National Geographic scientists have explored a never-before-seen remnants of a pre-Columbian civilization hidden in the mountain rainforests of Mosquitia in Honduras. Led by rumors of a white city or a city of the monkey god, researchers had found signs of human habitation in the dense forest using radar in 2012, but only recently have managed to explore the area on foot. And it appears that these remains uh, of the civilization represent a, a previously unknown an unnamed ancient culture distinct from the nearby Maya civilization. The Mosquitia region of Honduras is one of the least disturbed areas of rainforest remaining in the world, yet increasing levels of ranching threaten the area with deforestation. The director of the Honduran Institute for Anthropology and History has called on the international community to support the Honduran government in protecting this culturally and biologically important area. Speaking of disappearing civilizations, Have you been enjoying this record-breaking warm winter we've had in California? Perhaps you've been gloating about it to your friends and family buried under all that snow in the Northeast? Or maybe you've been alarmed at the recent headline from the LA Times that California has just one more year of water supply left. Jay Famiglietti, the NASA scientist who wrote about this, has since clarified that their analysis of satellite data shows a drastic decline in water resources in the state since 2011. But we won't be running completely dry by 2016 because we still have groundwater to last a few more years. Although that groundwater you're drinking is actually fossil water because we've dug deep enough to suck up water that percolated down there at a time when mammoths were taking mud baths in the marshes of Central Valley. Unless that El Nino, which was supposed to give us rain this winter, shows up stronger next year, we might be in deep trouble. So we better start letting our lawns dry and recycle our water more carefully 
even as we figure out how long we can sustain ourselves in this Cadillac desert. Meanwhile, a new paper out just this week in the Proceedings of the National S Academy of Sciences reports that the North Atlantic current has become slower than it has ever been in over a thousand years. Why should we care about this? Well, remember that climate change disaster blockbuster from some years ago, the day after tomorrow, which froze North America in a sudden ice age because the North Atlantic Ocean lost its salinity due to the melting of Greenland's glaciers. Well, something similar, if not quite as dramatic, has been happening. The waters of the North Atlantic are kept in circulation as part of a giant conveyor belt of an ocean current, which brings warm water up from the tropics to mix with the colder water in the north, creating the familiar weather patterns that have helped civilizations succeed in Western Europe and Eastern North America for the past millennium. It appears now, though, that the meltwater from the glaciers has slowed down this current remarkably, setting off changes in regional and global climate in ways that we don't yet fully understand. Hurricane Sandy and the blizzards of this winter may just be a preview of what's to come. Exciting and uncertain times lie ahead. But for the rest of the show now, we are actually going to turn and look back at the history of our civilization and life on this planet. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Mara Brady from the Earth and Environmental Sciences Department at Fresno State. Hi, Matthew. Dr. Brady is relatively new here in the Valley, having been on our campus for just a couple of years. Uh, she earned her doctorate in geophysical sciences from the University of Chicago. But she tells me that she likes to hang out with biologists, even though she studies living things only long after they've turned into rock. That's right. Welcome to a Candle in the Dark, Mara. Thank you. So, uh, just to throw the big question at you, tell us, what is our current, current understanding of our planet's age and history, and how do we know uh, how old things are in the, in among the rocks? And before you answer, let me also remind you uh, that as physicist Leo Zillard put it, you should assume infinite ignorance and unlimited intelligence on the part of our audience. Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, our, our current uh, understanding of the age of the Earth is that it's about 4.6 billion years old. So that's 4.6 billion years old. And that is mostly based on dating meteorites that have come to Earth. So if they have fallen on Earth, that means Earth must have formed before they got here. And so, so yep. What do you mean by dating? Yeah, not, you're so not taking the meteor out, out for dinner, right? Correct. <laughs> yeah. So, so we want to know the age at which those meteorites cooled, mm -hmm. and so they lock in um, a signature of when they formed, and as soon as they cool, mm -hmm. the radioactive decay process starts, and different elements decay at different rates, and so we that's a fundamental property of their physics and so we know how long it takes for certain elements to decay to other elements and so we can measure the ratios of those elements in the rocks and know at what point the meteorite cooled fell onto the earth and has now started to radioactively decay okay i think w when you talk about dating many of us have heard likely about carbon dating mm -hmm. but isn't it that carbon decays at a, on a relatively short time frames. So how can you date things that are billions of years old? That's a good question. So uh, we use different tools for different for different uh, lengths of time and spans of time. And so those different tools offer different 
degrees of resolution. So for example, carbon um, has a certain, we call it a half-life. So the point at which half of the parent so atoms just that just start. Just to <laughs> clarify for people who may have uh -huh. forgotten the physics lessons from high school, uh -huh. Uh, when we say decay, what, what are we talking about here? The carbon so comes in different forms, mm -hmm. right? Yep, so you have, um, now you're really testing my, <laughs> <laughs> my knowledge on the spot here. <laughs> but yeah, so you have carbon decaying to a different form of carbon, or mm -hmm. sometimes an, an element can decay to a different element. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, we call them parent atoms to start with, and they can decay to daughter, daughter atoms. And so we measure the ratio of the parent and daughter atoms to understand the dates. And so different elements have different decay rates, just like different bank accounts have different interest rates, right? You can, mm -hmm. some have a 5% interest rate, some have a 0.2% interest rate, and those are going to grow, mm -hmm. grow your money faster than others. Same thing with decay. We're just thinking of it in a negative sense. So you decay a certain percent per a certain unit of time, a certain amount of time. And so carbon really only works for about the last 10,000 years. And mm -hmm. so it's really useful for the last 10,000 years. There are other um, elements. So in particular, the one, one of the main ones we use to date things that are really old is uranium and thorium. And so uranium decays to mm -hmm. the element thorium. And that has a much, much longer half-life. So the amount of time it would take for the parent atoms, for half of them to decay, for 50% of them to turn into the daughter is on the order of, I don't remember off the top of my head, but millions to billions of years. So that process takes so much longer that we can use it to date older things. And so depending on the time frame that we're interested in studying, we'll use the different tools. And radiometric dating or this process of radioactive decay is just one tool that we use to date things in, in our Earth's history. So this is all relatively new tools within the last you know, century or so. Yes, yeah, within the last century. Yeah. So how has our understanding of the age of the earth and, and geology changed in the last couple hundred years? So, th so that's a, a really good question. There's a couple. So the first important one is what we've already been talking about, which is the age of the earth. So that's been since the beginning of you know the 1900s that we really understood this uh, process of radioactive decay and how we could use it to mm -hmm. age date the, the uh, rocks that we find on earth. And so that's a pretty revolutionary concept in terms of how we think about how long our earth has been around and what has been going on. Mm -hmm. The other uh, idea that is relatively new is plate tectonics. And so even in the 1960s, 70s is when our idea of plate tectonics, which is the fact that our continents and they move around have been shifting yeah. through time um, because new ocean crust is created at what we call mid-ocean ridges and ocean crust gets subducted at plate boundaries next when it when that oceanic crust meets up with continental crust and so we're constantly moving the plates um around mm. our our mantle on top of the on top of our mantle on earth and so that's a really important concept that has helped us understand why we see the changes that we do in mm. in our geologic record through time and so the fact that we haven't really fully understand the mechanism of plate tectonics until the 60s and 70s. We had an idea that, um, so before we had this idea of plate tectonics, we talked about continental drift. Mm -hmm. And that um, idea was initially rejected because we didn't really have the full mechanism for why the plates were moving. So this idea that you have um, new crust created at ocean boundaries and some crust mm -hmm. subducted 
at, at other play boundaries on the other side. Um, so the continents weren't just floating around in the ocean, and that was the initial idea behind continental drift. So we could observe the pattern that the continents appeared to have shifted in time, but we didn't quite understand the mechanism. Um, weren't able to test the mechanism for how that's happening. So 60s and 70s, we finally start to understand that. And that obviously changes how we think about why we have mountains, yeah. why we have the features that we do on Earth, why we have earthquakes yeah. where they are, um, volcanoes where they are. So that is pretty, pretty exciting, I think. And that's part of why Earth science is so exciting to me is that um, our ideas are constantly... Changing, and we have new information, and, and it is a relatively newer field compared to some of the other sciences. But okay. that—that's what makes it, I think, more exciting. Yeah, that is exciting, and I, as a biologist, I find it exciting also because you're giving us tools at this interface where we can start reconstructing the history of life. So, can yeah. you talk a little bit about that, and especially, you know, the context of how our understanding of the age of the Earth influenced? Darwin and are thinking about the evolution of life on the planet. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I think one of the most interesting things I think about in terms of the history of Earth is the coevolution of life and the environment. And so the environment obviously influences life yeah. in terms of where it can grow and how it can survive and, and who survives and, and who um, survives and reproduces onto the next generation. But life actually influences our planet as well. So a big example is the fact that we've been increasing um, the concentration of oxygen in our atmosphere through mm -hmm. time. And there are several periods throughout Earth history where we think life might have played a pretty big role in terms of contributing that oxygen. So algae that live in the ocean are photosynthetic. That means they're like plants on land. They take in carbon dioxide and turn they that carbon sunlight, into yeah. its tissues. So yeah. they take sunlight, carbon dioxide, and water to grow, and they produce oxygen. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that life existed actually contributed oxygen to our atmosphere. And I think that is one of the most active and really interesting areas of study today is how biology and geology interact to create mm -hmm. the patterns that we see today. So another example is as we talk about changes in carbon dioxide concentrations in our atmosphere today and the contributions to climate change, there's um, much more algae in the ocean that takes carbon dioxide out of our atmosphere than we have in, in tropical rainforests, for mm -hmm. example, in the Amazon. So if we can understand how those organisms respond to climate change and whether they amplify or, or dampen the effects of climate change is really important. So that's an active area of research that really gets at that intersection between biology, geology, chemistry, mm -hmm. Yeah, and what it gives me is sort of this sense that the Earth, both the, the living and non-living components, is a very dynamic system with lots of changes I through the course of history. Mm -hmm. And I guess a lot of our own thinking is is on a much shorter time scale, and we tend to think of things as being stable. Yes. Which may be one of the reasons why I think maybe we're having trouble with, with comprehending the magnitude of climate change and, and what it might mean for us. Yeah, I think that's something that geologists and, and earth his, his, historical earth scientists really can contribute is this concept of scale. So whether mm -hmm. it's spatial scale on a global sense, how things can be impacted, so how local changes affect global, mm -hmm. um, global measurements, but also yeah, this concept of time, the fact that Earth has been around for billions of years and has gone yeah. through many yeah. changes in climate, atmosphere, life, water, all of these things have changed through time. Yeah. The, the makeup of our continents has changed through time. 
where our ocean basins are have changed through time. So I think that's something that I really appreciated um, when I was going through school is that I really appreciated getting this longer perspective. Um, it's, it's often most of us make decisions based on the immediate benefit to yeah. us and, and what we see in front of us. But yeah. to have a, a longer term perspective is, is really important and helps us understand the rates of change. So mm -hmm. even though the earth has experienced dramatic changes due to natural forcings many, many times in earth history. So there's been periods where sea level was really high, carbon dioxide concentrations are really high. This is during the time of the dinosaurs. We had a seaway that went through North America because mm -hmm. sea level was so high. That happened. You know, there are natural factors that contribute to... So where we're sitting now was probably underwater. <laughs> where we're sitting now was, was underwater until not too long <laughs> not too long ago from a geologist perspective. Yeah, for y from your timeline. Yes. <laughs> On geologic time scale. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so um, that the rate of change of those things is much slower than the rate of change that humans are influencing these mm. systems today. And so even though Earth will eventually reach a new equilibrium, you know, at which point things are still moving, but the mm -hmm. rates of change may, the, the outputs are balancing the inputs, that time scale is much greater than humans are changing. So for example, we can put CO2 into our atmosphere on a daily basis. Every day we drive our cars. The time it takes for uh, weathering processes of rocks to take that CO2 out of the atmosphere and bury it as sediments is on the order of millions of years. So yeah. yes, that's uh, the ultimate fate of the carbon in our atmosphere was we put excess carbon in our atmosphere that causes weathering of rocks to chemical weathering of rocks to speed up but that's on geologic time scale so so that rate will operate on a million year time scale so with our technology we sort of short-circuited that process and brought that carbon back down from the ground exactly yeah so that's so much faster yeah. so the so on the flip side it takes at least a million years to form fossil fuels so the the youngest fossil fuels we have today are a million years old many of them especially in north america are hundreds of millions of years old so yeah. the gas shales on the east coast the the coals in the mid-continent those are hundreds of millions of years old most of the oil and gas we have in california is 10 tens of millions of years old and so it took tens of millions of years to form those and yeah. we're putting it into the atmosphere on a daily basis. So I think just appreciating the rates and the differences in those rates is really important for knowing how the system responds in the meantime. Hmm. Fascinating. And, and just wrapping my head around <laughs> the time scale <laughs> is kind of mind bending. Yes. Uh, that's why I love talking about this stuff. Uh, so as a, a, a faculty at Fresno State, you know, with, with, uh, what is it like to conduct this kind of research while teaching undergraduates here? And we talk about this often. We know that you know some of our students come with beliefs about the Earth being maybe just a few thousand years old based on biblical accounts. Uh, how do you get them excited about studying a much more ancient and more fascinating Earth? That's a, that's a good question. So I think that um, the first thing that I think is important to note is that particularly in general education classes, the point of a general education class is to take a class outside of your specific area mm -hmm. of study and yeah. to learn about a different perspective. So when students come to my class, I say that we're going to learn about the scientific method. We're going to learn about what scientists do. You're going to ask questions like scientists do. You're going to construct explanations using evidence just like scientists do. That may not be the way you're used to thinking about things, mm -hmm. and that might not be what you would learn in your religion class or your philosophy class, but the point of this class is to teach you a way of knowing about the world that is science. And so I, I approach it as this is a different way of knowing about things. We use... Mm -hmm 
observable evidence or sometimes indirect observations to construct an explanation based on evidence. And that's different than a faith perspective. Yeah. And so it doesn't mean that one is right or wrong, but if we're talking about a science class, that's what we're going to talk about in science. And, and it's important for everyone to learn about how scientists approach approach the world. I think another thing that's important is to get the students involved, not just me standing up at the front telling them what yeah. science is, but having them do science so they can actually see for themselves that if they look at some evidence, they can come up with an interpretation. The person next to them might have the same evidence and come up with a slightly different interpretation, but then we can talk about the strengths of those arguments and interpretations, and, and we look at multiple lines of evidence to get at these things. So I often don't just present one piece of evidence, but most of the scientific theories that have stood the test of time are things that have multiple independent lines of evidence. Yeah. So different scientists collecting the data, different methods to collect the data. So yeah. in terms of the age of the earth, there are different yeah. radioactive dates that we have from yeah. different meteorites, different scientists, different labs, different methods of collecting that information. And they all point to around the same age. Yeah. And so when we have multiple lines of evidence, our argument is stronger. And so I guess I approach it in terms of here's the evidence, here's mm -hmm. the data, you be a scientist, you think like a scientist in this class, and when you leave this class, yeah. you can do what you want to do, but yeah. in my class, we're going to talk about how scientists think. So. Yeah, and in some ways, that the that estimate of the Earth being 10,000 years old that the young Earth creationists sort of like to repeat was also sort of a quasi-scientific way of estimating the age, right? Yes. Based on <laughs> biblical accounts. <laughs> so it's kind of funny that that you know some of these interpretations have stopped with science a few centuries ago and but this is it's fascinating and it, it's an it, it's a challenging thing i think in sometimes in our classes yeah yeah but but speaking of you know getting them to think about the older earth uh -huh. uh, uh, and we straying into the politics of things here our newest presidential candidate uh, who just announced his candidacy uh, ted cruz is uh, a pretty hard critic of science even though he he also says he's a is a booster for NASA, although he, while saying that he <laughs> says NASA shouldn't be studying the Earth, but we should be po looking <laughs> outwards into space. And then recently he also, I, I think, stirred up your community of scientists, yes. geologists, by <laughs> saying the geology is not a hard science, yes. right? It, I mean. He, <laughs> If I were to listen to him, I shouldn't even be interviewing you here on this <laughs> science show, right? We should be focusing on more <laughs> fundamental hard Yeah, sciences. so what do you say to that? What do you say when you have uh, powerful politicians uh, with yes. that position? Well, I think there's a couple things. I mean, it seems like I, you know, I read the reports that during a NASA budget hearing, there were several congressional Republicans that said we should be focused on the hard sciences, <laughs> earth science is not a hard science, and we should focus on human missions um, mm -hmm. to outer space. And so there's a couple issues with that. Number one, anything that we're using to study other planets mm -hmm. is based on our understanding of the Earth. So if we didn't have Earth science, we wouldn't really be able to understand other planets. Obviously, there, there's a lot of technology and engineering that goes into manning those missions. Um, that's an additional contribution and, and mm -hmm. innovation that happens as part of space missions. But the fundamental ways that we understand processes on other planets is how is based on our understanding of Earth science. So if mm -hmm. you want us to study other planets, we have to study Earth. The other thing I would argue is just that Earth science is actually, and the, the complex issues that we're facing today, climate change, drought, um, food production, all of these things are rooted in Earth science and our understanding of Earth systems. So atmosphere, 
the lithosphere, which is mm -hmm. our, our rocks, the sedimentary cover, as well as the rocks underneath them, biosphere and, mm -hmm. and hydrosphere or water, all of those systems are part of what we learn as our scientists. We have to put together all of the hard sciences, the mm -hmm. hard sciences according to these congressional, in quotes, according to these congressional Republicans. We have to put together biology, chemistry, physics, yeah. math, in order to understand how all those systems interact. So I would argue in some ways that it's more complex and interdisciplinary inherently, mm -hmm. which is how we do science. Okay. So I could ta keep talking about it. But yeah, we could keep talking about time. it. <laughs> yeah. So just uh, a question I wanted to ask as we wind up uh, is, uh, how did you get into this line of research? Were you a rock hound or a dinosaur aficionado like my daughter is? No, <laughs> not <laughs> at all. So I did not have a single earth science class until I was in college. And wow. I think that's speaks also to our country's value of our science, which I think will be hopefully shifting with the, the new science standards for K through 12 education. But um, I sat in on a geology class because it looked interesting and my friends were taking it. And I, I really did like math and science growing up. And I was taking a lot of chemistry and math and physics and I was starting to get a little frustrated um, in terms of being able to apply it and mm -hmm. how, why is this important? And then when I took the earth science class, I saw, I could see it in front of me. I could hold it, I could touch yeah. the rocks. We'd go out into the field and look at the rocks and look at the soil and look at water and streams. And so I really liked it because it was very visual and hands-on and that's what got me interested at first. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Berry. Thank you. And now uh, a brief commentary in a series that will feature different scientists' views about science in the public square. This month, Dr. Paul Crosby, an evolutionary biologist who revels in studying the icky world of parasites, will share a recent story about an ancient event recorded in the rocks of Eastern Africa that holds meaning for our own evolutionary story. Take it away, Dr. Crosby. Well, good afternoon, Madhu and Mara, and uh, thank you for inviting me. So uh, this is my evolution minute or two. Um, <laughs> so this afternoon's short evolution story is part science and part detective story. Last week, a paper was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that addressed the significance of a 17-million-year-old beaked whale fossil to the evolution of humans in East Africa. Nineteen or so species of beaked whales are still with us, all medium-sized whales with distinctive long, narrow beaks. While much of their biology remains enigmatic, they are all capable of prolonged, very deep dives of up to 3,000 meters, or about 10,000 feet, in open ocean. This estimated seven-meter-long fossil whale, known as the Turkana zifid, was originally discovered in 1964 and described in 1975 from a river sediment site far inland on the East African plateau of Kenya. The fossilized remains of the animal's head then went missing until 2011, presumably lost in the bowels of a museum somewhere. Vertebrate paleontologist Lewis Jacobs, one of the co-authors of the current study, who was at one time head of the National Museums of Kenya and knew the possible significance of the fossil, spent the next 30 plus years looking for it. He finally succeeded, finding the whale buried in the collections of Harvard <laughs> University, who sponsored the original expedition, from where it was returned to Kenya. So who cares? Well, we do, meaning humans. After the rediscovery, the exact site of collection was determined from the original field notes. The fossil was collected on the northern periphery of the East African Plateau, 740 kilometers inland and 620 meters above sea level from the current coast of East Africa. Not a typical site for beaked whales. The authors assert that the whale swam upriver, having lost its way from the coast, 
and at a time when East Africa was well watered and humid lowland close to sea level in elevation. Whales swimming up low gradient rivers is not a rare occurrence. A humpback and her calf swam 133 kilometers up the Sacramento River in 2007 and a minke whale has been recorded a thousand kilometers up the Amazon River. The Turkana fossil is now the oldest and most precisely dated beaked whale and that date much more accurately establishes the beginning of the uplift of the East African Plateau. That uplift led to a radical change in environment from humid forested conditions to a much drier grass dominated savanna, which in turn led to the evolution of a sequence of primate groups. Eventually one of those primate groups stood upright, developed a bigger brain and started using tools to manipulate the environment. And descendants of those primates now use new tools to piece together stories like this one of the beak whale that once swam upriver and got stranded in East Africa. And so there we have the intersection of biology and geology. Thank you. That's a lovely story. Uh, so finally, uh, a quick reminder that the Central Valley Cafe Scientifique meets on the first Monday of each month at 7 p.m. in Peeves Pub on the Fulton Mall in downtown Fresno. For more information about the cafe and announcement of upcoming events, please visit our website at valleycafesci.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. And join us for a pint of the fine brews on tap at Peeves Pub with a hearty helping of science to nourish your mind. The next event on April 6th will feature a presentation by our guest today, Dr. Mara Brady, on challenges and opportunities in reconstructing Earth's history and about her own research in that area. So if you are intrigued by some of what we heard from her today, do join us for the cafe for another chance to learn more and to ask questions of Dr. Brady in person. And tune in next month on April 28th for another episode of A Candle in the Dark. Our guest will be Dr. Ulrike Muller from my own department talking about some tiny things that move really fast and other wonders from the biomechanics world. Until then, happy sciencing, because remember, science is a verb. <laughs>